Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that presents the best of Lumpin' Radio each week. This week, we discuss the legacy of Ronald Reagan, learned about the challenges facing preservation during a pandemic, and mulled over the sweet science. All this plus the latest from Eureka Cast Now, The Trump Diaries, and Size Matters. It's the Lumpin' Week in Review for January 8th, 2021. Chuck Mertz chatted with historian Gerald Horn about the intertwined histories of boxing and black men in America. Horn's new book, The Bittersweet Science, traces how Jack Johnson, Sonny Liston, and Muhammad Ali were portrayed as both icons and beasts by white sports writers, and how these portrayals led directly to mass incarceration of the black population. This is Hell airs Thursdays and Sundays at 10 a.m. We're talking boxing with a historian whose books have made our annual list of favorites to be featured here on This Is Hell in an interview for the three consecutive years, including in 2020. Our first guest of 2021 is historian Gerald Horn, author of The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. You write the boxer known as Bo Jack developed his skill as a fighter as a result of a brutal practice stemming from slavery in his native state of Georgia. Born in 1921, Bojack became light heavyweight champion in no small measure because of his skilled participation in battle royales in Augusta, where for the enjoyment of affluent Euro-American members of the famed local golf club, he and other low-wage caddies and shoe shiners were blindfolded in a boxing ring and were compelled to slug one another until there was only one left. As of 1955, Bojack was adjudged to be the greatest non-heavyweight draw in boxing history. To what extent is boxing the product of chattel slavery? And how much is it a a cultural and historical universal, something that has always been a sport as in hand-to-hand combat? Well, certainly, as your latter comment suggests, the hand-to-hand combat or boxing goes back millennia. With regard to the book at hand, which focuses heavily, although not exclusively, on the prominence of black Americans in the sweet science, much of that can be attributed not only to slavery, but fighting the process of enslavement. I mean, for example, uh, I begin the book not only talking about Bo Jack, but talking about the development of certain kinds of martial arts on the shores of Africa, which begin to arise precisely when the slave trade begins to accelerate. That is to say, in what I called in my last book, the long 16th century, speaking of the 1500s. And certainly, I think that with regard to Black Americans in boxing, the fact that you had many of these Black men who were involved in these so-called battle royales, which were were, were quite uh, brutal and bloodthirsty, it obviously hones many of them to then excel in the boxing ring. Then, of course, there's this concept of masculinity, which you alluded to in your opening comment. Now, to be sure, there has been a long line of women boxers, including the daughter of the late Muhammad Ali, amongst others, and a long line as well of women wrestlers. But I think it's fair to say that there has been this uh, unique connection between masculinity, or at least a certain form of masculinity, and boxing, and particularly masculinity, boxing, and Black Americans, because although this may be hard to believe in 2021, uh, earlier in the 20th century, and certainly before, there was this cockeyed notion that Black men were not altogether masculine, that if so, they, quote, 
would not have allowed themselves to become enslaved, as the saying goes. And therefore, what happened is that black Americans felt they had to fight back against this particular trope. And I think that it also helps to explain the success of black Americans in professional football, which is another rather violent sport that is disproportionately dominated by black American athletes, about, what, 65, 70 percent, if not more. And so from the inception of boxing as a popular entertainment in the late 19th century and the early 20th century, uh, you had black Americans excelling, but then they were running up against the brick wall of white supremacy because many of these black American boxers were getting paid handsomely to do what, if they had thought of it outside of the boxing ring, they could have been lynched for. <laughs> that is to say, uh, beating some white man into a pulp or into submission. And so then, therefore, that leads to the long-time, long-term search for a so-called great white hope. Uh, you may be familiar with the movie of the same name, starring James Earl Jones, um, the actor um, who, of course, plays Jack Johnson, uh, the boxer. And uh, he, Jack Johnson, of course, was a black American born in Galveston, Texas in 1878 and becomes heavyweight champion circa 1910, uh, which upsets the apple cart with regard to masculinity, presumably with regard to white supremacy as well, which leads to this long time, long term search for a great white hope, so-called. And you can make an argument that that search has yet to be eliminated. You mentioned this perceived docility of black Americans, and I don't really understand that concept coming out of an era of slavery when, as we discussed with you in the past and as we discussed last year with Vincent Brown and his book Tacky's Revolt, there were centuries and centuries of slave uprisings, almost to the point where it was a transatlantic slave war. So to what so what explains this concept of docility? Was this an intentional uh, disinformation campaign? What explains this sense of docility when that certainly wasn't the case of uh, those who had been involved in so many slave uprisings? Well, turn the coin over. Uh, imagine, if you like, during the era of slavery, if people had dealt with the brutal, bitter reality that, as you put it, there was this transatlantic uh, war involving the enslaved versus the enslavers, it would make it very difficult for many people to sleep at night. It was easier for folks to sort of coddle themselves with this idea that actually not only were these enslaved folks docile, but in many cases it was felt that they were happy-go-lucky, that they were satisfied with their plight, and that therefore the enslavers could sleep well at night. Uh, but keep in mind as well that even during the time when there was this idea that these black Americans were basically docile, that they weren't really men, it didn't take much for the script to be flipped and for the idea to take flight that actually they were brutal meanies, that they were brutal beasts. And in fact, you, you can see that happening in boxing. Uh, later in the 20th century, uh, with the rise of Sonny Liston, some of your listeners might recall Sonny Liston and his epical bouts with the man once known as Cassius Clay, then Muhammad Ali, 
his epical bouts with Floyd Patterson, a former heavyweight champion. Uh, Sonny Liston was portrayed uh, quite openly and notoriously as a beast. I mean, that was taken straight from headlines. And so I don't think that it was uh, a radical disjuncture when you had this devolution or evolution of these black American men on the one hand being treated as if they were docile. And on the other hand, in the blink of an eye being treated like they were brutal beasts uh, who had to be restrained by any means necessary up to and including mass incarceration, lynching and all the rest. So do you think whites during the, I mean, this is totally aside, but just as a follow up of what you were saying, do you think that whites were actively involved in denialism on a daily basis of the brutality, the horrors, the terror of slavery? Well, I think so. And, and, and in some ways, this ties into some of my work that I've dealt with. Uh, I mean, for example, you know, I wrote this book some years ago called The Counter-Revolution of 1776, Slave Resistance and the Origins of the United States of America. And in that book, I posited this idea that it was difficult to reconcile the creation myth of the founding of the United States, that is to say, these great men who walked on water, the likes of which we have not seen before or since, speaking of Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, etc., and this vaunted constitution uh, guaranteeing equality and, and Bill of Rights and all the rest, it, that was hard to reconcile with the brutal reality on the ground. Uh, that is to say, mass enslavement, uh, that is to say, dispossession and genocide against Native Americans. And if you begin to contemplate seriously the latter, uh, you cannot maintain the former. And as I said, you might even have trouble sleeping at night. And which, of course, uh, just as an aside, it, it brings us to the present because I noticed your witty comment about the 11,780 votes that are being searched for in Georgia, uh, which then needs to be seen in the context of an extraordinary letter by 10 former chiefs of the Pentagon uh, warning the military not to get involved in U.S. domestic politics which means that they know something we may not know. So in other words, what's happening is that reality and fantasy are, are sort of, uh, well, fant- reality is catching up with fantasy in, in, in a word. And basically that's what happened at a certain point with boxing when you saw that the rise of Sonny Liston led to this idea, not that black men were docile, but actually that they were beasts. That is to say the reality in a, in a sense, became even more distorted, but it, I'm afraid to say it did get closer to the truth in so far as uh, many black men re- reacted very violently uh, to being discriminated against and being subjected to white supremacy.
The Boys from I-94 kicked off their fifth season with author Kevin Matson, whose new book, We're Not Here to Entertain, details the connections between the 1980s punk rock scene in America and the administration of Ronald Reagan. Matson talked about the vibrant zine culture that surrounded punk rock, how punk was an inheritor of 1960s protest music, and why Reagan tried to quash the DIY economy. I-94 is every Thursday and Sunday at The very beginning of the 1980s, and just to set the scene, uh, you know, there were basically a couple waves of punk rock, depending on how you think about it. Obviously, there was, you know, the wave that came over from Britain. Uh, the Sex Pistols are probably the best-known band, but, you know, there was The Clash, The Stranglers, a, a whole group of bands in the late 70s. Some people consider Detroit's MC5 to be one of the first kind of proto-punk bands, and, of course, that was the 60s. They played here in Chicago at the Democratic National Convention. You're really concerned in this book about the cultural reaction to when Ronald Reagan became president, which happened after a long period of what people considered stagnation. Uh, I don't think many people necessarily remember it, but, you know, there was gas shortages back then. Stagflation was a real thing. Uh, there was a sense that the end of the 1970s, uh, a lot of the promise of the American dream had kind of been drained out. And when Ronald Reagan appeared on the scene, he was a former Hollywood actor. He had actually been a Democrat in California before he ran for office there. And he'd been the head of the Screen Actors Guild. He was not necessarily a popular film actor. He had been in a, a number of films in the, in the 1950s, but not necessarily a big box office draw, but he was a clever organizer of the Actors Union. And he parlayed that with California Republicans into a national platform. Uh, and California is one of the places where punk rock started. And you, you talk about in your book with bands such as the Dead Kennedys from the Bay Area, Black Flag from around Southern California, TSOL, a number of those bands that were emerging kind of out of this very fertile uh, climate that you argue kind of existed in reaction to Ronald Reagan and what he stood for. So, Kevin, if you don't mind starting off, can you tell us a little bit about why, first of all, Reagan was an attractive figure to so many Americans of a certain genre and the way he kind of sold himself? Because I think that would tell our uh, listeners really why there was such a fierce artistic reaction to him. Yeah, no, thanks. That's a great question um, to begin with. Uh, I think that uh, what... Uh, Ronald Reagan represented to uh, the voters of America in 1980 was um, a candidate who could pull the country out of its what was called at that point in time malaise. That's based upon a speech that Jimmy Carter gave in 1979, in which he talked about the oil crisis and talked about how America's consumer culture was was getting in the way of being able to solve the problems of the oil crisis. And Ronald Reagan really reacted to that speech by saying something like, "You know, the American people are great. There's no reason to question their their." their greatness. What we need is better leadership. And um, he always, I think, based his kind of view of the world on dreams. He was a big guy. Uh, he talked all the time about dreams and how dreams kind of informed his political thought. And I think what he gave was a really happy, smiley-faced version of the United States at a time in which the country was really down on its heels. I mean, you've got the, the Iranian hostage crisis. You've got the Soviet Union's invasion of Afghanistan. You've got the oil crisis. I mean, these are times that are really tough. And Reagan gave a very kind of smile and happy and optimistic view that I think attracted a lot of voters. Clearly, it, it, meant, it meant that Jimmy Carter didn't win his second term. Um, and so I think that he, he really played up that sort of, you know, dream, uh, happy leadership, and will turn the country around sort of spirit. And, and then I think that that really is, in some ways, what a lot of the original 1980 punk bands um, were really re reacting to and rejecting in, in so many different ways. 
Yeah, you know, I what I didn't want to do in writing this book was write uh, once again another history of all the bands. Um, we've had those books already. Thank um, you. And you know, I think that that that's become the kind of model about how you write. And you focus on the bands, you focus on the band members, you focus on the songs that they're writing, and all that sort of stuff. I mean, that's in the book. But I wanted to kind of take a step back and look at the wider communication and the wider networks that punk was basically establishing in the 1980s. And you're absolutely right. The the key institution to do such a thing were zines and. I was fortunate that in in doing my research, um, a, a lot of new archives were opening up, which had a ton of zines. And the advantage that I had was I was able to get to um, not just the zines that I was interested in, but like you're saying, I'd go to the back pages, and what they do is not just Maximum Rock and Roll, but and Fact Sheet Five, but other zines would like list out all these um, uh, you know zines that they were in contact with. One of the best sources was a a, a zine that came out of Washington D.C. called Truly Needy. Um, in any case. Um, what the what you can see is this sort of network of communication going on, and also what I often refer to as a kind of potlatch culture. People are sharing things with one another. They're saying, "If you send me my, if you send me your zine, I'll send you my zine," and it's you know kind of a direct barter sort of system where there's really no cash that's involved in it. Um, and so I think that those zines capture a lot of the debates and discussions about you know what's the meaning of the movement, what's going on in the world that punk should be paying attention to. Um, you know, something that goes beyond just the bands and the songs that we typically associate with punk. Yeah, Wanda, I, I think that's interesting. And Kevin, I think, too, that it, there was regional ideas. That mm-hmm. I remember there was a band in Detroit everyone loved called Section 8, and I think oh, they're yeah. from mm-hmm. New Jersey. And, like, one of our friends got, like, a 7-inch, and everyone recorded it. And, and so there was, like, these region. It was based on where you got your information from. So, And I think that would completely apply to politics, too. And obviously for folks like Mike, you know, we didn't have – well. You didn't have the internet when you were a kid either, but you know this is the this is the way we communicated. So sometimes, if you got a zine from Southern California, you would know all the bands from Southern California. And I, I remember there was a few bands that were really popular in Detroit. Section Eight being one of them, the Doughboys from Canada, and they were kind of an emo, like a precursor to emo. And um, and I, I I wonder too sometimes if that's I don't know why Detroit never had the political stuff. Maybe it's because it's a way more blue collar than some of the other parts. Well, here, here's a part of the story that I'm really interested in. When you're talking about that seven-inch record and people making copies, there's a section in Kevin's book where he talks about a Dan Kennedy's uh, cassette tape where they left one side blank and they encouraged their um, yeah. their fans to record on the other side and basically take down the record industry because the the behemoth of the record industry was was whining and complaining that their profits were being killed and artists were being hurt because people were recording at home instead, you know, uh, copying off the radio or copying other people's tapes instead of going to stores and and buy stuff. And, you know, it seemed like most of these these kids or these young, mostly men, it seemed like, um, knew they were fighting a losing battle. They didn't have the resources. They didn't didn't have the the capital that the corporate powers had. So... Yet they they still try to develop these techniques to I don't know if they thought about it as changing culture, but it it just reading it for as as a younger person now and seeing so many parallels to the Trump administration and what some people uh, uh, tend to grip to in hard times, which is you know like a denial of things that might be depressing and 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 holding on to uh, self confidence at whatever cost. It it seems like. There's nothing you can do to fight the powers that be. And I saw that you're an American historian, 
your professor at Ohio University, I think. And I, I, I was curious while I was reading if you, if you could think of historical movements that that um, were able to influence um, ethics and culture on 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 a national scale. I know Thomas Frank had the book earlier this year about populists, the populist movement. Um, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that, though. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a strain within American cultural history, you know, wider American cultural history, that you could go back to um, the early 20th century of Greenwich Village in Manhattan, where you start to see a lot of artists and writers, literary figures, um, kind of, you know, assembling together and putting on dances and, and you know, kind of building a collective culture. Um, they're also trying to attach themselves to the, the to the kind of nascent labor movement at the time. They're reporting mm -hmm. about strikes in Patterson and in Colorado and, and places like that. Um, and so they're trying to make a connection between their own kind of cultural rebellion against, you know, what we would generally call Victorian, um, you know, uh, Protestant, white Anglo-Saxon sort of culture and trying to, uh, you know, basically re-enliven and in, in, along the way celebrate immigrants, for instance, um, as being br bringing in new ideas and new new uh, new new things to America um, and refreshing America's culture. Um, so I think that there were there, in the early 20th century there there were the original Greenwich Village rebels. If you move up the calendar, clearly the Beatniks had some of that, you know, and the Beat writers had some of that. They engaged with things. People like Allen Ginsberg became very very political through the his own beat writing, his own poetry writing. And I do think that in the 60s, you know, there are people who are trying to make connections between, say, the kind of growing counterculture and politics. And I think the group that I actually believe was the biggest inspiration to a lot of punks, um, knowingly or not, during the 1980s was the group known as the Diggers, because the Diggers were doing actual alternative things. They were they were setting up free kitchens in uh, Golden State Park, uh, Golden Gate Park, um, to feed young kids who were homeless, who had come and drifted into the San Francisco scene. They were putting out um, warnings about the uh, through the use of posters warnings about dangerous air areas within the hate ashbury about the threat that especially younger women um, were going to run into because of people like the hell's angels and stuff like that and so you can see this sort of attempt to merge culture and politics that i think runs back to the greenwich village scene up through the beatniks up through certain strains of you know hippie counterculture whatever you want to call it um and that's i think probably what in many ways um punk in the 80s kind of built upon again i would say not necessarily consciously this is much more of a person who hopes to bring a kind of larger historical perspective to this and to say look you know these punk kids may not you know think that they were doing similar things to what the diggers and the beats and the and the greenwich villagers were doing but in fact they were you know i mean just because you don't recognize it at the time that that's what you're doing in fact you are and one of the people who i think was uh, that we've already mentioned is is tim yohannan tim yohannan when he's, um, uh, you know, putting out Maximum Rock and Roll, Rock and Roll, which begins in the 82, he's he's an older guy and he had experienced the 60s and he had fond memories of a famous clash in Berkeley, California, known as the People's Park fight. And um, what it was was about, you know, people taking over this vacant lot and throwing down grass, freshening it up, turning it into a public space and then having to try to defend that against people who were sent in by none other than Ronald Reagan to try to get rid of that 
um, to try to get rid of the institution, try to get rid of the park and turn it back into something like a parking lot um, or something that was owned by the university. And and so, you know, I mean, in many ways, what Johannan was doing, I think, was saying, I have memories of, of what was happening in the 60s. And I think that they do apply to the present. And I think he made the conclusion is you have to create your own culture. You have to build your own things. And then you have to defend those things against people who attack them. And I think that, that I think that's a strain that runs throughout the 20th century. I don't think that 1980s punks were, were exceptional. And I don't necessarily think that they were always cognizant of what it was that they were doing. Not that that made them stupid. It just meant that they didn't have a you know wider his, historical perspective that they could draw upon. Fresh towel? Oh, uh, yes. Thank you. Are you having a good night? I'm just on a date with a guy who makes me so nervous. Don't be. You look great. You want a cigarette? Calm me down a little? I don't smoke. Well, how about something stronger? What? Yeah, most of this mouthwash is like 60 proof. Um, I think I'm probably good. Spritz of perfume? You don't want him smelling this flop sweat you got going on. No, thank you. What? What the? Oh, wow. That's a nice scent. Thank you. It was not cheap. Mm-hmm. Well, see ya. Oh, it was my mother's favorite. I bought it to see if she would respond to anything from the coma. Oh, my God. Did it work? You know, we're, uh, we're taking it one day at a time. You poor dear. Here. Thank you so much, Miss. Jeez, you know, I I didn't know your mom was dead or something. (laughs) Well, if you see her, don't tell her I said that. She'd Eh? kill me. What's going on, Kyle? When I said I wanted to see what you do for a living, I was hoping that maybe I'd be able to do a ride-along or shadow you or something. Well, you obviously can't come in here. You're a guy. How about I take the men's room and diversify this stuff? Diversify? Who taught you that? Have you been reading Men's Health again? Ah, come on. Why don't you just set up shop outside between the bathrooms? You could get both dudes and dudettes. There is a level of personal service required for these fat donations. Right, but I got a bow tie. I gotta get something to eat, Kyle. Uh, Why don't you float the mop as we agree? I want to attend to the patrons of the bathroom. The mop and the out-of-service signs Uh, are in the utility closet over there. Five minutes to mop, five minutes to dry. Done. Welcome to the ladies' room. Here. Forget this. Time to diversify. Oh, my gosh. Hello. Uh, wrong bathroom. So sorry. Nope. By all means, this is the right bathroom. Uh, what are you doing in here? That's okay. I'm the bathroom attendant. So when you're done washing your hands, you come over to me. I give you a piece of gum. I got a spray of cologne for you. I got some finger sandwiches. I mean, I even got some hummus. Look at the spread. Okay. Can you leave? Now you see, this is a gender diversified bathroom. Uh. Yeah, so okay. basically it. Okay, cool. Uh, hey, all right, I got my first customer. Get this ready here. Got the carrots. Hello there, El Capitan. Uh, yeah, no, I just, I just gotta use the sink. Having a rough night? <sighs> you, you could say that. Oh, you're looking sharp there, Cap. Yeah, there's this girl I'm on, I'm on a date with, and I, I think I like her and I'm trying to figure out how to tell her and I don't know what she's going to say. Take a minute, have a smoke, calm down. Yeah, yeah, thanks. I just need a minute. This will do it. 
Uh, Kyle, what are you doing? Why is the men's room out of service? This is a gender-diversified co-ed bathroom. This is not a good idea. Why are you so backwards thinking, Jess? Yeah. This particular toilet is not legally equipped for co-ed occupancy, and I don't think we, as extra-legal restroom attendants, get to make that call. Is there a party out here? Yeah, grab a sandwich. L- Laura? James? Did, did you... That was you? I... You were talking about me? Uh, I think you're a babe. <laughs> I, I really like you. Ugh. Thank God there's plenty of places to barf in here. What a sappy moment. Let's get out of this bathroom. Thanks for the smoke. I can't believe it. Yeah, I know. We should have got a bigger tip. No, I can't believe that girl didn't wash her hands. This week on the Trump Diaries, one of the darkest days in American history as Trump incites a riot, Capitol Hill is stormed by insurrectionists attempting a coup, Democrats win big in Georgia and take control of the Senate, Mitch McConnell is deposed, Twitter kicks Trump off its platform, and calls begin for Trump's arrest and impeachment on charges of sedition. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 1443, January 1st. Mar-a-Lago hosted a New Year's Eve gala at which revelers without masks dined indoors and danced to performances by Vanilla Ice and members of the Beach Boys. Trump did not attend, instead cutting short his holiday vacation and returning to D.C. without explanation. His gala appeared to violate Palm Beach County rules mandating facial coverings in all businesses and establishments. Donald Trump Jr. posted, quote, Okay, this is amazing. Vanilla Ice is playing the Mar-a-Lago New Year's Eve party. As a child of the 90s, you can't fathom how awesome that is. Congress delivered a stinging rebuke to Trump during a rare New Year's Day session, handing him his first veto override in the final days of his administration. The GOP-controlled Senate voted 81-13 to to override Trump's veto of a mammoth defense bill. Trump subsequently tweeted that, quote, a weak and tired Republican leadership allowed the bad defense bill to pass. Negotiate a better bill or get better leaders now. Senate should not approve it until fixed. Republicans filed suit against the Vice President Mike Pence over his role as presiding officer of the Senate. The suit, filed by Representative Louis Gamert of Texas, seeks to pressure Pence into rejecting electoral votes that were cast for Joe Biden in yet another attempt to subvert the election. Pence's role in the Senate is largely ceremonial. He has responded by asking the judge to dismiss the lawsuit. Trump was not pleased that Pence tried to reject it. He reportedly called Pence to express some surprise about it. He has been more vocal with others about his displeasure. Later that day, a judge dismissed the suit, saying the party's filing lacked standing. Gamert said he would appeal, claiming Biden's electors are fraudulent. Quote, if I don't have standing, no one does. When no one ever has standing, what good is a court system? And Trump claimed that Georgia's two Senate races are illegal and invalid, just the latest in a series of aired grievances. Trump also attacked the governor, who is a Republican, the Secretary of State, who is also a Republican, and numerous election officials by name. Most of them are Republicans. Day 1,444, January 2nd. The homes of Senator Mitch McConnell and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi have been reported vandalized days after the contentious passage of a stimulus bill that has been criticized as woefully inadequate. McConnell's home was tagged overnight with red and white spray paint. Photos show writing on the front of the home, including, where's my money, on the front door. 
Graffiti was also found spray-painted on the garage door, and a pig's head was left on the sidewalk in front of Pelosi's house. McConnell called it, quote, a radical tantrum. A federal appeals court rejected a suit that sought to force Vice President Mike Pence to throw out electoral results, ruling that the person filing the suit, Louis Gohmert, had no standing and noting it was riddled with factual errors. Gohmert later said in an interview to Newsmax he still believed in the court system, but that the rejection of his suit amounted to those leaving those upset about the election with no recourse but street violence. Quote, bottom line, the court is saying, we're not going to touch this, you have no remedy. Basically, in effect, the ruling would be that you've got to go to the streets and be as violent as Antifa and BLM. Georgia Republican Senate candidate David Perdue was forced into quarantine just five days before the election. Purdue was exposed to a campaign worker infected with coronavirus. Republicans are starting to worry about that normally reliable state. While polls remain tight, Democrats are vastly outpacing Republicans in early voting turnout, and Trump has spent the month railing against Georgia Republicans and the governor in general. Some of Trump's allies have gone so far as to tell Georgians not to vote. Day 1445, January 3rd. The COVID-19 death toll in the United States surpassed 350,000 with health officials anticipating yet another surge from holiday gatherings. We also set another record for cases with 295,000 in a single day. A single day fatality record of 4,000 was also set. The Trump administration is quietly attempting to undo some civil rights protections for minority groups at the 11th hour. The Justice Department submitted a change to how it enforces Title VI of the Civil Rights Act for White House approval. That change would affect what is called the Disparate Impact Statute on Protected Groups. Narrowing the scope of disparate impact would have actually a major impact. Civil rights lawyers note the rule is one of their most important tools for showing discrimination because it allows them to take into account patterns of behavior that can seem neutral and compare outcomes for different groups to reveal hidden inequities. Russian hackers behind the cyber espionage campaign waged against the United States access Justice Department email accounts. About 3,500 employee emails were accessed. Russia appears to have used a widely used software called JetBrains, made by a company based in the Czech Republic, to gain access to federal government and private sector systems in the U.S. JetBrains, which counts 79 of the Fortune 100 companies as customers, is used by developers at 300,000 businesses worldwide. One of those is SolarWinds, whose network management software played a central role in allowing Russian hackers into government and private networks. Trump's attempt to open Alaska's Arctic National Wildlife Refuge to drilling bombed. Only half of the oil and gas leases offered for sale received bids. All but two of those came from the state of Alaska itself. The sale of 11 tracks on just over 550,000 acres came at $15 million. That was a fraction of what Trump predicted it would. Day 1446, January 4th. In a taped and rambling phone call, Trump demanded that Georgia's Republican Secretary of State find him enough votes to overturn the presidential election results and threatened him with a criminal offense. Trump told Brad Raffensperger, the state's top elections official, he should recalculate the vote count so Trump would win the state's 16 electoral votes. Raffensperger declined. The call is just the latest example of Trump's increasingly frantic attempts to instigate a coup. On the call, Trump appeared unable to conceive of a reality in which he lost the state of Georgia. During the call, Trump told Raffensperger, quote, I just want to find 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have. The people of Georgia are angry, the people of the country are angry, and there's nothing wrong with saying that, you know, um, that you've recalculated. Raffensperger replied that we believe that we do have an accurate election. 
Trump responded, no, 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 you don't. You don't have, you don't have, not even close. You guys, you're off by hundreds of thousands of votes. Trump also vaguely threatened Raffensperger, saying, you know what they did and you're not reporting it. You know, that's a criminal, that's a criminal offense. And you know, you can't let that happen. That's a big risk to you and Ryan, your lawyer. That's a big risk. In fact, Georgia state law makes it a felony to solicit, request, command, importune, or otherwise attempt to cause another person to engage in election fraud. By urging election officials to find votes that were not legally cast for him, Trump could be prosecuted under that law. Meanwhile, nearly a dozen Republican senators and senators-elect led by Senator Ted Cruz of Texas said they will reject electors from certain states, won by President-elect Joe Biden, citing false allegations of voter fraud. They will be joined by 140 Republicans in the House in an unprecedented attempt to thwart the Democratic process. The move is to set a sharply partisan tone as the 117th Congress opens despite a raging pandemic and a major economic crisis. Vice President Mike Pence also endorsed that move, which is certain to fail. Trump is to award the nation's highest civilian honor to two of his most vocal political allies, Representative Devin Nunes of California and Representative Jim Jordan of Ohio. Both men worked aggressively to undermine the Justice Department's Russia investigation. Jordan also defended Trump during impeachment. Trump is also considering granting the Medal of Freedom to Bobby Bowden. He is a retired Florida State University football coach. Day 1447, January 5th. Georgia votes today in a critical election that will decide control of the Senate. Two Republican incumbents face Democratic challengers in races that have seen hundreds of millions of dollars poured into them. As with the November election, results are unlikely to be known for a few days as advance and mail-in voting appears to be strong. Both Republican candidates have said they support Trump's attempts to seize power illegally. Final polling has both Democratic candidates ahead. Mail-in voting is also thought to favor them. As Trump's behavior has become more erratic, every living former defense secretary issued a warning yesterday against the armed forces becoming involved in his attempt to overthrow the election. Trump is now reportedly attempting to delay Biden's inauguration, while Republican congressmen have said they will fight the certification of the election tomorrow. Georgia's election officials pushed back strongly against Trump's bizarre claims. In a press conference, Gabriel Sterling, a Georgia voting system implementation manager, systematically refuted Trump's already debunked claims of voter fraud, saying, quote, this is all easily provably false. Sterling went point by point, refuting Trump's claims about ballot scanning devices being hacked, saying, quote, it's very hard to hack things without modems and people replacing parts in Dominion voting machines. I don't even know what that means. Sterling added that one of Trump's theories was demonstrably untrue, as his boss, Brad Raffensperger, does not have a brother named Ron who works for a Chinese technology company, nor in fact does he have a brother named Ron at all. At a rally in Georgia, Trump said, quote, I'm going to be back here in a year and a half, and I'm going to be campaigning against your governor and your crazy secretary of state. You must deliver a Republican victory so big the Democrats can't steal it or cheat it away. They're not taking this White House. We're going to fight like hell. Trump later tweeted, states want to correct their votes, which they now know were based on irregularities and fraud, plus corrupt processes never received legislative approval. All Mike Pence has to do is send them back to the states and we win. Do it, Mike. This is a time for extreme courage. 
an official plane Trump has used in the past, is due to fly to Scotland the day before Biden's inauguration. Scotland's Sunday Post newspaper reported that Prestwick Airport near Trump's Turnberry Golf Course has been told to expect a U.S. military Boeing 757 that has occasionally been used by Trump. A military spokesman said it is usually a sign Trump is going to be somewhere for an extended period. Leaving the country before formally leaving office would be unprecedented for a U.S. president. In response, Scotland's First Minister Nicola Sturgeon told Trump that, quote, under no circumstance would he be allowed into Scotland, citing a hard lockdown in place to prevent COVID-19 spread. Quote, he's not coming here to play golf. Trump suddenly replaced the top federal prosecutor in Atlanta with another Trump-appointed prosecutor, bypassing the top career prosecutor who would normally take over on an acting basis. U.S. Attorney Bijong Blay Pak abruptly resigned on Monday after serving three years in the role. Pak's resignation came one day after the release of a recording of a phone call between Trump and Georgia's Secretary of State. During that call, Trump denigrated a federal prosecutor in Georgia saying, quote, you have your never-Trumper U.S. attorney there. Four American intelligence agencies belatedly confirmed that the hack of the U.S. government and corporations was, quote, likely Russian in origin. The rare joint statement also said the operation was ongoing. Trump falsely claimed again that the hack was not Russian, but China, and that everything is well under control. Day 1448, January 6th. In scenes more suited to a banana republic than the United States of America, a failed insurrection on Capitol Hill led Congress to be evacuated as violence erupted in the seat of America's government. The shocking scenes in Washington, D.C. reverberated around the world. The last time the Capitol had been stormed by anyone was during the War of 1812. These scenes were incited by Trump. Earlier in the day, he urged a D.C. rally to march on the Capitol and claimed that everyone in opposition to him was corrupt. He was joined by alleged lawyer Rudy Giuliani, who told the crowd to prepare for trial by combat. Members of his family and Senator Josh Hawley, a leading Senate Republican behind the attempt to steal the election from Biden, also made appearances on the stage. Brown shirts then marched down Pennsylvania Avenue toward the Capitol, forcing Congress to shelter in place as police used tear gas, flash grenades, and guns to repel hundreds of protesters. Pipe bombs were found at Republican National Headquarters. A similar device was also found at Democratic Headquarters. The Confederate flag flew in the Capitol building and on top of the buildings. Nazi flags and symbols were also seen in the hands of the rioters. At least 52 people were arrested, several people were injured, and at least four died. One woman was shot and killed as guns were drawn on the floor of the Senate. Congressmen from both parties called the riot a coup attempt. Trump refused to call out the D.C. National Guard. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi then activated the Virginia National Guard instead. D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser instituted a curfew at 6 p.m. The curfew will now last until the 21st. Despite increasingly urgent urging from aides and allies during the chaos, Trump refused to call for calm, blaming his opponents for the violence. One aide said he kept saying the vast majority of them are peaceful. What about the riots this summer? What about the other side? No one cared when they were rioting. My people are peaceful. My people aren't thugs. An administration official added, quote, he didn't want to condemn his people. Twitter would later lock Trump's account. Hundreds of other Trump supporters across the country also gathered at state capitals, in some cases prompting evacuations. Meanwhile, a group of congressional Republicans led by Senator Cruz objected to Biden's electoral college wins in several states as part of a series of extraordinary challenges to this election's outcome. 
Vice President Pence, had earlier rejected Trump's pressure to block congressional certification, saying that he lacked the, quote, unilateral authority to decide the outcome of a presidential election. Following the violence, at least four Republican senators backed away, including the outgoing Kelly Loeffler of Georgia. However, the certification of Biden continued long into the night, with Congress finally confirming his win around 5 a.m. Eastern. In response, Trump's surrogate said there would be, quote, an orderly transition of power. In Georgia, it was made official as Senator-elect John Ossoff defeated incumbent David Perdue in a tight race. The Reverend Raphael Varnock, of course, also beat Kelly Leffler. The Democrats now control all three branches of government, and Chuck Schumer is poised to become Senate Majority Leader. The results are a ringing repudiation of Trump. Both Republican candidates in Georgia backed his attempt to overthrow the election. Twitter said it will permanently suspend Trump's accounts if he violates any more of the site's rules. That move came after Trump repeatedly spread false claims about losing the election, and of course his supporters stormed the Capitol. Trump locked his account for 12 hours following the removal of offending tweets. The ban came after Trump blamed his opponents for the violence and praised the mob that stormed the Capitol as, quote, very special. Quote, these are the things and events that happen when a sacred landslide election victory is so unceremoniously and viciously stripped away from great patriots who have been badly and unfairly treated for so long. Trump also tweeted a one-minute video, more than two hours after the mob ransacked the building, repeating his lie that his, quote, landslide election was stolen while advising the group to go home now. We have to have peace. We love you. Day 1449, January 7th. Congress officially certified the election of President Joe Biden, defying the braying mob Trump had unleashed on the Capitol. Congress rejected attempts from Republicans to overturn the will of Arizona and Pennsylvania voters by large margins in the Senate. A scuffle almost broke out on the chamber floor after Representative Connor Lamb condemned the Republican objections, saying, quote, that attack today, it didn't materialize out of nowhere. It was inspired by lies, the same lies you're hearing in this room tonight. For the first time in four years, Trump loyalty seemed to crack. Resignations began at the White House, and even some Republicans called on Trump to resign. Other loyalists implored the president to stand down. At least five aides, including First Lady Melania Trump's chief of staff, resigned effective immediately. Still, many of Trump's most vocal and visible defenders could not bring themselves to fault him. Representative Matt Goetz of Florida blamed, quote, anti-Trump saboteurs masquerading as Trump supporters for the violence. His lines were widely played on Fox News. Meanwhile, Trump's cabinet is understood to be discussing removing Trump through the 25th Amendment. In an unprecedented move, the National Association of Manufacturers, the largest business community lobbying group, released a statement supporting removing Trump immediately. The statement read, Vice President Pence, who was evacuated from the Capitol, should seriously consider working with the cabinet to invoke the 25th Amendment to preserve democracy. One administration official described Trump's behavior as that of a total monster. It was insane and beyond the pale. Trump apparently spent the evening in a bunker at the White House raging at Vice President Pence. Trump was described as so mad at Pence he couldn't see straight. All day it was a theme of, I made this guy, I saved him from a political death, and here he stabbed me in the back. Trump's fury extended to Pence's chief of staff, Mark Short. Trump told aides he wanted to bar Short, who was with the vice president all day at the Capitol, from the White House grounds. Short responded, that was fine with him. 
The Capitol Police Force was strongly criticized for their performance yesterday. It was clearly outnumbered and unprepared for the riot, despite the attack being openly organized on social media. Protesters from the left also saw a stark double standard as police notoriously used rubber bullets and kettling against peaceful demonstrations against racial injustice this summer. Footage showed officers appearing to move the barricades aside and let the protesters in to storm the Capitol. Facebook has banned Trump indefinitely. These are the Trump Diaries. Nicole Amin rolled into Studio A before the pandemic to play a great set of down-home rock and roll. This excerpt was engineered by Ari Shellist.
Download complete. Now playing, Eureka Cast Now. Inspire curiosity. Imagine science. When you are applying for this honorary unit, um, you know, in the memo of your $20 check, you can put what you want your unit to be. For example, let's say that um, you have a loved one named um, Osiris. And yeah. Osiris... Who doesn't? ...has a certain body temperature. Right. Let's say... Um, I don't know, 20 degrees Celsius. Um, right. And then from now on, 20 degrees Celsius will be one degree Osiris. And, mm. and, and you can hug your loved one and say, Osiris, you are at one Osiris right now. Isn't that just lovely to imagine? Imagine, uh, imagine that your, your cousin, Christine, got into uh, a pretty bad car accident yeah. going at 105 miles per hour on the open highway you can have them remember that time by giving them 105 miles per hour is uh, a charlotte or whatever it's kind too it's sweet that they have this uh they have this very real very present thing in their life to to remind them of, the, of themselves and it will exist forever so like like for example let's say another individual gets into a car accident and, and they die and the officer can can ask, well, how how fast were they going? And they can say one Charlotte. Yeah. And and then that individual will know and will be so glad for the luckiness that they've survived because one Charlotte survived. Charlotte survived one Charlotte. Yeah. But Janan did not. Couldn't even survive a Janan. Uh, so I, I happen to get one of these. So I, really? I suppose I need to speak to to you know. Please I'm do. a little biased. And again, like you can choose whatever this is. You know, you, they, you don't say like I register. I want to have one of these, and they say, okay, that's you know two two meters per arc length or whatever. That's yours. You can choose. Right. What this represents. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um. And and you can also. It doesn't have to be for yourself or even necessarily a human loved one. Mm. I the love of my life. My lovely Siamese cat, Heart Paw. I I love her so much, yeah. and 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 she. I wanted her to live forever, not just in the second realm, which she will. I yeah, I but, was going to ask, but in in the have... in the empirical realm. Sure, and and which is the, which is the truth. People aren't going to remember, you know, a book you write or a plaque you have. People are going to remember units of measurement. They're going to be using those forever. Exactly, exactly. And and so I happened to get a unit of force named after Heartpaw. And now, and I love to do this, right. um, whenever I'm in the lab, um, whenever someone asks me, oh, how, how fast does that centrifuge go? I get to say 12,000 Heartpaw meters. And what, so... The unit of measurement was how fast your cat spun? Um, it is the force that was exerted by the cat. The force that was exerted by... When, when, when they pushed you, when they sat on you? When they do all sorts of things to me. Eureka Cast Now. Broadcasting Saturdays, 8 to 9 p.m. on Lumpen Radio. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. 
The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Thank you.